It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson's here. I'm back. Thanks to Robert Balasair for filling in the last couple of weeks. We're going to talk about so many uh, interesting topics. Uh, is CryptoLocker uh, neutralized? The Department of Justice says so. And a problem that was a problem with password managers has now been fixed. It's all coming up next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 464, recorded July 15th, 2014. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 192. It's time for Security Now, the show. Yes, I'm back. Thank you to Robert Balliser for filling in yep. for me. Father Robert's a great fill-in. So according to some, better than Leo. That's well, we have a, we have a stand-in. There's only one Leo. <laughs> But Tom Merritt, uh, when he did the, the show, case. was great. I think people like hearing a little variety. You and I have been doing this show for almost eight years. Uh, so I think it's... No, no, more. More? Uh, we're, at, like, we're approaching 10, I think. 464. It's a lot of years. Yeah. So people I'll like hearing... It's like when you, if you wear the same shoes for 10 years. You'd, every once in a while, you'd want to put on some loafers. Yeah, I, I tend to... Actually, I do wear the same shoes for 10 years. <laughs> why do I, I, why am I not really, surprised? Why are you not You have surprised? 10 pairs of exactly the same shoe. Actually, I do have several pairs yes. that are still yet unworn because <laughs> I found some fabulous ones. <laughs> They're not in the refrigerator. Share that with us. Are. What is it? What is your perfect shoe? Um, I got some shoes. I went to Sport Chalet and I said, okay, I want the best, like, I don't remember why, but they were like running shoes, but yeah. I don't run. I right. bicycle. But, Comfy. Uh, maybe, maybe it was for the stair climber. And I said, I don't care what they cost. And Eli looks at me and says, are you sure? And I said, I'm absolutely sure because, you know, my feet are important. And I got these things that I called moon boots because they were so springy. They were, I mean, they're not air filled, but they're just foam somehow. And I just kind of bounced around. I felt like I was in low gravity. And uh, for a while, I was only wearing them. Some of the time, but now I'm still can't remember why I would have been wearing them. But then I thought, why am I not wearing these all the time? They're comfy. And so that's that's what I do. So yeah. um, what's the brand? They're Nike somethings. They're like high-end Nike running shoes. And they're just – and so I went back and I got some more because, you know, Palm went out of business. <laughs> you know, it's a silly thing to talk about, but, you know, Dickie Bartolo wears these amazing shoes – these strange Italian shoes, they're uh, also like running shoes. And he's, he just loves them. It's all he wears. And I, so it just seems like there's something. It's what it is. It's people who, who work for themselves. They can wear anything they want. That is the case. Yeah. And I'll, now, I'll never forget when I stood up once and said, oh, and, and, and you commented, oh, you have no pants on. <laughs> and I thought, okay, Leo, for our audio they're audience. They're shorts. It's an, it's important for you to explain. <laughs> there are sh you have uh, short pants on. It's not dangling. <laughs> uh, I don't think I introduced you. That not that you need any introduction. That is Steve Gibson, our security guru at grc.com, creative spinwright. And every week we talk about security. We have some questions to answer, but before we do that, I think we should probably, as we have been doing, not for all nine years, but for many of these years, cover the security news of the week and. 
Yeah, well, uh, actually, I think the the you probably mean the reverse because the original concept that you proposed was a weekly newscast about security oh. news, and then it was not long after we folded the idea of feedback and questions in oh. to sort of you know close the loop. So last week there was so much news, and we just kind of went so long that we only got four questions in, although in fairness, the last one was five parts. So it was, you know, <laughs> That's a long it, was, it was a substantial <laughs> one uh, from Ofer. Uh, but I thought, again, we've got a huge news day, which I wanted to do justice with. There's a big story, which it, which is like totally dominated my Twitter feed, which was, it, it's odd because Almost 10 months ago, actually 10 months ago, in August, some security researchers at UC Berkeley informed the makers of five different web-based password management tools that they'd found some problems. Four of the five instantly fixed the problems. The fifth one's never been heard from, even though they're just merrily going along with people downloading and using this now known insecure utility then what happened was the news just broke that you know asking the questions whether web-based password managers are secure and that scared everyone well the fact is these problems were fixed in september of last year nine months ago but out of respect for the researchers and probably at their request nobody said anything until now so, but they produced a PDF, which is 15 pages, two col- columns, and incredibly interesting and information-packed. That's the topic for next week, is the a close look at their analysis of sort of arguably controversial web-based password managers. The, you know, the problem is because it's it's javascript code can it be secure and because it's so intimately tied to the browsing experience which has traditionally had problems with things like cross-site scripting vulnerabilities and all that you know what what special problems do does that mode of operation bring we know it brings convenience because it's just in the browser which is where you want your password manager to be if you need a password manager, and who doesn't because we don't have Squirrel yet. So um, anyway, so I want to explain briefly that there's no problem and that we're going to go into great detail next week. Uh, and then I wanted to f- finish up the rest of our questions that we didn't have a chance to get to last week. So we've, we're going to talk about that. Uh, and if what's really interesting, too, is last week we covered a story about a mesh network of internet connected light bulbs and how because of the the homegrown protocol that had been reverse engineered it was possible for hackers to get the the password for their users home wi-fi networks not good and so i was bemoaning the lack of standards for the internet of things and lo and behold we now have three so we'll talk about that and introduce the new term sleepy nodes because you want these things to not burn up your batteries. Many times they're going to be things like, you know, smoke alarms and 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 smoke detectors and, and such that, that need to run for years on a double A battery. So you need for that your nodes to be sleepy. 
Uh, also, hours ago, Google announced something called Project Zero, which we'll talk about. Uh, there's uh, the Libre SSL fork of the Open SSL project came out and stumbled upon leaving the gate. Um, a little coverage of Netflix and Verizon, still arguing, but there is hope. Uh, and then a weird report from the Justice Department saying that CryptoLocker has been neutralized. So lots uh-huh. of fun stuff to talk about. Right. Yeah. Um, and I've adopted something that I haven't mentioned before, but I'm trying every week to find an image, a graphic, a something which relates to the podcast and, and to security and is fun or interesting. And so it's always on the, the lower half of the front page of the show notes, which yeah, you, you can see it there, which was the really interesting diagram that Verizon published in a blog posting that I linked to later in the show notes. Uh, what I liked about it was it, it shows in detail the architecture of Verizon's IP network. And what happened was one of their customers, you can see him over there in, in his house uh, in the lower left, happily typing away. He's a Fios user with a 75 megabit connection, <laughs> which, uh, of which I am so envious because, you know, we're, I'm here in, you know, Southern California and Verizon isn't with Fios. And boy, would I like to have it. But, uh, you know, we're, we're still waiting. Anyway, this guy apparently, so goes the story, contacted somebody, got somebody's attention at Verizon and said, why is my Netflix buffering when I have a 75 megabit connection? And so this diagram, it, it sort of covers... First of all, there are the internal Verizon network architecture, which is interesting, but also shows what we've been discussing the last several weeks, which is the problem occurs at the boundary, the so-called peering connection, the, the peering border uh, between Verizon, in this case, and the network that they're peering with. It's, it's that... We should that, point this data comes from Verizon. Correct. Correct. So um, take it with a grain of salt. They, they're they at great pains to say it's Netflix's fault, not our fault. Well, independent of whose fault it is, the, I'm talking about the technology here. Okay. And so the, the technology is that it's and, – and that's what this diagram explains, which is, I think, clearly correct. I mean, no one would argue that it is the the border router – but where the where the the ISPs are peering, that you get saturation because of because of you know just insufficient bandwidth at that location. So anyway, so as we'll see, Netflix has an agreement with Verizon now, and the press is confused because when Netflix agreed with Comcast, the problem just disappeared instantly. Where and my guess is that it's just a matter of hardware. That, that we just need more hardware, it, like, you know, in this peering location in order to handle the traffic. Because well, as we you, know... You remember the post from Level 3, uh, which is one of these uh, transit providers, yep. um, that it was the five big U.S. broadband companies that were intentionally congesting the network by not upgrading their end. This implies I, that it's Netflix uh, not upgrading its end. And that's why I think this is a little deceptive. It's what Verizon wants people to think, or it's what Verizon contends. But uh, Level 3, which well, frankly uh, has also has a dog in the hunt, they would like to say it's not their fault. 
Um, yeah. You know, they say it's it's Verizon's fault or somebody. Basically, somebody has to spend money right. in order to right. to create bandwidth for for this incredible phenomenon. I mean, if one third of the Internet's traffic in the evening is from one organization, that's a phenomenon. I mean, this is, you know, the whole idea of, you know, video on demand still makes my head spin, but <laughs> it's what people want. Yeah. So, um, okay. So last week we talked about the discovery that Google made of of fraudulent certificates for their own properties and Yahoo. And uh, they and, and, and this came about because I'm monitoring the CRL set now, waiting to see if they're going to block my new revoked.grc.com domain the way they bl- br- revoked the first certificate I put up. They haven't. They apparently they're just they don't care or they just figure, well, I'll just change it again as I will. I'm prepared to do that. Um, but as a consequence, I noticed when they updated the CRL set um, early last week. Then we got, a couple days later, we got an announcement of what that was about, which was that an Indian, as in, you know, India-based ISP, I'm sorry, CA, had issued some um, some intermediate or subordinate uh, certificates which were being used to mint fraudulent domain certificates. And Google caught that immediately because, I mean, Google is nothing if not vigilant about the use of their certificates. So what they were doing was, since, as we know, they're not actually able to revoke things, they pushed out a another patch essentially to their certificate list explicitly listing three certificates which were known to have been involved in, essentially were being trusted. Now, what's interesting is that only Microsoft had this this Indian root in its trust store. So, so Mozilla and Firefox were never at risk. No Apple systems were at risk, either iOS or Mac. Um, and... So Chrome was protecting itself from abuse on Windows. And I said at the time, well, Microsoft was going to have to revoke these shortly. And they did the day after the podcast. So uh, if anyone noted additional updates coming in after the second Tuesday's updates, which was last week, that's what this was. This was Microsoft adding three certificates to their untrusted certificate list and if anyone who wants to make sure who's a windows user can if you go into the to microsoft certificate manager you should see three certificates uh from that are um from the nic certifying authority and nic ca 2011 and nic ca 2014 which Microsoft has now pushed out so that those certificates will not be trusted. Now, what Google Google then updated their posting with some additional news that's you know since then, and they said um, 
uh, uh, they, they, they said on July 9th, the India CCA um, informed us of the results of their investigation on July 8th. So this was the day after last week's pod. Well, actually, July 8th was the day of the podcast, but we, so we didn't cover it on the podcast. And they said they reported that, that uh, the, uh, it, uh, the issuer's process was compromised and that only four certificates were misused. The first on June 25th, the four certificates provided included three for Google domains um, and only one of which Google was previously aware of, which probably, and and Google only becomes aware of them when they spot them in the wild, when when they catch them being used. So that means there were two others that had been issued, but which Google hadn't, hadn't experienced, no, no Chrome browser because Chrome does certificate pinning, they, Chrome is able to spot the abuse of Google's certificates. Um, so Google learned of of two additional ones, and then also one for Yahoo that we do that we did know about last week. They said, but then Google said, however, we are also aware of misused certificates not included in that set of four and can only conclude that the scope of the breach is unknown. So in other words, this this Indian CA doesn't have control of their certi- their certificates anymore. They were informed of a problem. They said, oh, you know, okay, we'll get back to you. And when they did, they didn't have a full report because Google was aware of, of additional misuse and may actually have been a little cagey waiting to verify that this CA that was naturally embarrassed, as, as a, any CA would be, that had its, uh, you know, trust compromised, uh, wasn't, you know, didn't have the full story. So as a consequence, Google has announced that they are going to restrict the domains that they ever trust from this certificate authority, which, you know, this is a mess. Um, You know, this is the last thing you want to do is start having to put special casing code into your browser. But that's what Google's going to do. And this is only necessary on Windows, remember, because so not on Android, not on and, and, you know, uh, not on Mac, only when Chrome is being used on Windows because right now Microsoft still trusts certificates from this authority and is make and Microsoft is now making exceptions and apparently doesn't have all of them because from from what we've learned after Microsoft's push there are additional um, certificates which are still being trusted by Windows that have not been added to this block list so. I can expect, you know, we'll, we'll see additional certs being blocked. So the, so the certs that, so what Google's going to do is to push out an update to Chrome uh, at some point in the future, and they haven't said when, but I'm, I'm sure they will, such that certificates like gov.in will be trusted, nic.in ac.in whatever that is clearly gov.in we we can guess what that is uh bankofindia.co.in will be allowed and then a few others so just a handful of domains 
signed by this Indian certificate authority will be trusted by Chrome on Windows. And maybe Microsoft will just, uh, it's not clear to me why Microsoft is trusting this now clearly flaky certificate authority where Apple and Mozilla aren't, which means that nobody using Firefox or any Mac asset or Apple machine could ever be visiting these sites anyway. So, you know, it really does sound like this is a place where we all just, you know, say, sorry, folks, we're not going to, we're not going to trust certificates signed by this authority any longer because they obviously don't have control of, of their process. And we understand that's something that a certificate authority has to have. So, um, this, uh, I pretty much covered what I had next in my notes, which was this issue of web-based password managers. I've got a link to this 15-page PDF if anyone wants to, to jump ahead and, and absorb it. I will be doing that over the next week and completely talk about, for, as the topic for next week's podcast, what these guys found. Because this was nine months ago that these problems were found and fixed. Um, LastPass responded three days ago to this news coming out because everyone was worried that, unfortunately, the press miscovered this as they are wont to do, saying critical, you know, with headlines like critical vulnerabilities found in web-based password managers. Well, yes, nine months ago, they were responsibly disclosed and by the responsible password managers like RoboForm, like LastPass, like, and so forth, they were immediately fixed. And so LastPass wrote, she, uh, um, and I think that this was Joe and his team, said in August of 2013, a security researcher at UC Berkeley contacted us to responsibly disclosed novel vulnerabilities with the last pass bookmarklets, and then uh, last pass notes or Joe notes, it says actively used by less than 1% of the user base, because primarily that's what you have to do because there are no extensions available currently um, for Safari, for example, on the iPad. So you either use LastPass's tab browser or you use these bookmarklets, uh, and they're, they're a pain to use. So obviously <laughs> a very small percentage of the LastPass user base, uh, less than 1%, uses them. And also a problem with one-time passwords were found. Um, these researchers discovered one issue that could be exploited if a LastPass user utilized the bookmarklet on an attacking site and another issue if the LastPass user went to an attacking site while logged into LastPass and used their username to potentially create a bogus one-time password. Um, the researchers tested these exploits on dummy accounts at LastPass um, and looking at their logs. And remember that LastPass was a, a informed of this immediately, so they were able to look nine months ago and so they're saying we never saw any evidence of exploitation by anyone beyond the researchers and um, at, at UC Berkeley. The reported issues were addressed immediately as confirmed by their team, and we let them publish their research before discussing it. So that's why 
this is this is coming out nine months later, is that this paper was just released. Um, so no one needs to worry. Uh, these five password managers, well, sorry, four of the five have been secure since for like the last nine months. But this is an interesting topic. And so we'll delve into it in depth next week. For I am now, curious though, who the fifth is. Uh, yeah, and I'm just not remembering the name. Oh, okay. um, uh, if you look, if you want to pull up that I'll, I'll uh, PDF, up. yeah, 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 if pull it up. I'll recognize it instantly because it was not a, uh, a well-known it was not one password or RoboForm. No, or no, LastPass. no. Yeah. And I'm no I've got in. the PDF. The Emperor's new password manager, security analysis. Yes, yes. Exactly. JavaScript always worried me a little bit in these. I mean, that's what makes it open source, but it also means that you can. Well, it's it's not so much open source. It's what it's where the convenience comes from. Yeah. You know, it's open browser. Right. And it was uh, the 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 fifth one was a company called Need My Password. Hmm. Don't know that one. So, LastPass, RoboForm, My Login, and Password Box are the four that were analyzed, and the and the Need My Password people never responded. So did he test uh, others? Were these the only four or five that had problems or these are just the five he tested? I think these are the five that they looked at closely. Okay. So it doesn't mean you shouldn't assume that this vulnerability doesn't exist with other password managers at this point. Correct. And they also mentioned, because uh, I, I did do some digging, but not enough to give it the kind of coverage I want to, that they they commented that they're going to be using what they learned to produce their own. So I, I don't know what the backstory is there. Uh, but, you know, they did immediately well, disclose. Huh. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Yeah. And they, we'll, they talk, we'll talk about this, of course, next week. So Yep, All exactly. The yeah. So the good, what I was bemoaning last week when we covered the story of the the light bulbs that were leaking people's private Wi-Fi network passwords was that with this whole Internet of Things, and now we're seeing the acronym IOT, uh, the Internet of Things, you know, where where this is something that's very popular. And I, and I had I had mentioned that I was glad Apple announced with the iOS 8 announcement that they were going to be getting into this because I know they'll take security seriously. And the problem we have with just every, you know, random companies wanting to cash in on the popularity of widgets with little microprocessors and then that can participate on people's wireless networks is that everyone's going to invent their own system, their own network, their own mesh, their own way of connecting these things. And in fact, I've not yet ever gotten around to setting up my Nest thermostat, but my buddy has. And he was telling me like how he set it up. And, and he's not super technical, but I couldn't understand from what he told me how it ever knew what his Wi-Fi password was, which worried me. Um, so, so the good news is, we've we've gone from from me wishing there were you know like some standard to now having too many <laughs> in one week, um, because of course we don't want many. We or, or, or it, it wouldn't be bad if if we had many so long as they're all secure. And the problem is, I mean, this is like classic in the early days of crypto. People would just say, "Oh, look, we we're using our own." 
cryptography. It's like, oh, no, 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 no. Please don't, you know, ask your friend to come up with something that he's really sure is secure and then, you know, burn that into your silicon. J use real crypto. So so the problem has been without standards and we ha there haven't been any, there, there's really no choice but to roll your own. So we're seeing a because everyone now really does understand the need, we're going to get standards. So it turns out that a couple months ago, there was one announced that I didn't, I wasn't aware of, and we, that we haven't covered on the podcast. It's known now as the all seen, sort of as in all seeing, but in this case, it's all seen, S E E N Alliance. Uh, and it's at allseenalliance.org. Um, it uses open source software developed by Qualcomm called AllJoin, J-O-Y-N. And so there is also an alljoin.org site. Um, they announced in June that they had, they had acquired their 50th member. And 12 days ago, Microsoft joined. So this is a big group. Um, and their goal is, their stated goal is, as they say, a common language for the internet of everything. And on their website, they said, our homes, our cars, and the things ar around us are getting smarter every day. All join, which I guess Qualcomm has trademarked, is the open source project that lets the compatible smart things around us recognize each other and share resources and information across brands, networks, operating systems. All Join was initially developed by Qualcomm Innovation Center, Inc., and is now a collaborative open source project of the All Seen Alliance. All Join gives managers, or I'm sorry, manufacturers and developers the tools they need to invent new ways for smart things to work together. So... I've not looked in detail at this. I have a feeling that we'll end up doing podcasts on on either collectively or individually on on these three things because this is going to be, you know, a hotbed of security interest as as these devices connect. And the there are two topologies which are possible. One is the the the, the traditional star topology which is what we all have now in our homes with a central Wi-Fi wi router and, you know, our various devices, phones, computers, and things all connected to it. So there, there's a one-to-one a -one relationship. But the intriguing topology, which these things will be supporting, is a so-called mesh and it was a mesh topology that these LED lights we discussed last week are employing. The idea being that that they find each other and, and, and a mesh is robust because that's what the Internet is. When we've talked about routing, you know, uh, the Internet is a mesh routing architecture. It's a sort of a best effort. Routers are connected to multiple others and traffic can find a way. So, you know, even if you unscrew a light bulb that's in the mesh, the rest of the light bulbs can route around that one, even if they were using that one for their communications. So, 
Uh, and of course, the, the, one of the advantages that to the degree that these are these devices are really trying to be miserly about power, and that's you know a huge issue for them because they're typically you know little like little smart tags and and eye beacons and things running on batteries. They they really need to conserve. And we've talked before about how, for example, a smartphone will use up its battery faster when it's far away from a cell tower because it's smart about ramping up its broadcasting power as, as is necessary for its signal to reach the tower. Similarly, these devices that will be able to cons- conserve power if they're closer to appear and able then to use a lower level of power to get their message across. The other thing that these are using is t- t- technically or, or, or typically, these are very low bandwidth. So, you know, th- they're not having to move uh, tens and twenties and, and, you know, d- decades of megabits. They're just needing to say, oh, it's 32 degrees at the moment or don't worry, there's no smoke being detected here. You know, so those are ultra low bandwidth, you know, sort of like text messaging bandwidth uh, speed. And that dramatically reduces the amount of power that they need to use for transmitting. They can use the, the, the very fact that they're that they're running much more slowly means that they can reduce their power. So all kinds of of tricks will be employed in order to keep the batteries of these little gizmos um, going. And the fact is, the more you have around, the longer they'll individually last because they'll be able to use each other to hop their signal uh, among themselves and eventually over to a a router in order to gain uh, remote access. Number two of these three uh, was announced last week. So this is, you know, these these things are just beginning to happen. Um, uh, and in fact, the third one was announced today. But number two is the so-called Open Internet Consortium uh, called OIC. Um, and they've, you know, they've got, the, uh, again, a lineup of major companies. They said the Open Internet Consortium is being founded by leading technology companies with the goal of defining the connectivity requirements and ensuring interoperability of the billions of devices that will make up the emerging Internet of Things. Um, and, and among the members are Intel, Broadcom, Samsung, Atmel, Dell, and Wind River Systems, uh, with more expected soon. And this is, you know, a, a, a young group, so hasn't, but, you know, people are joining quickly. Um, so, so... Uh, that's OIC, openinterconnect.org. And then finally, in this morning's announcement, uh, is the Thread Group. And, uh, and that's just threadgroup.org. Um, and these guys are a little different. Uh, first of all, Thread is a protocol based on IPv6. And it's what the the Google's Nest group uh, is already using, that is Nest Labs at Google, is using this protocol. Samsung and ARM and Freescale, which is the the embedded component that used to be Motorola, 
uh, <laughs> something called big ass fans. And I was curious. So I went and that's what they sell is, uh, th- in fact, their, their homepage talks about how our fans are smart. And it's like, okay, well, so they have, they're large and smart fans. Um, and then Silicon Labs and Yale Security are among the current members of this thread group. Um, what they've got is a so-called thread protocol. And so, and so they distinguish themselves from the other two because they're not an IoT platform, but a wireless protocol, which the other two platforms, All Seen and the OIC, could work on top of. So um, these guys are, again, this is where they talk about a thread is their protocol, uh, which I'm sure we'll be talking about in the future, um, which supports so-called sleepy nodes, which are able to operate for years on a single AA battery. And there is an IEEE standard. It's 802.15.4, which is uh, specifically for the so-called uh, uh, six-low-W-PAN, uh, low-power personal area network uh, uh, protocol, uh, and it's all IPv6-based. So, uh, again, I've not had a chance to delve in-depth into these. We'll sort of keep our eye on them and see uh, which ones end up succeeding. But the good news is they really are focused naturally on security. And in fact, um, I don't remember which one it was. I ran across, I'm not seeing it in my notes. Somebody specifically said uh, that they were focused on authentic. Oh yeah. It it was the OIC group said um, they, they'll be focusing on security and authentication, initially targeting home and office and then automotive applications. Uh, And of course, you know, the thread group with, Google's Nest Labs and the others, they're using the thread protocol now. Um, and, it's, and I'm glad to see that it's, it's open and, uh, and you know, everybody's looking closely at security. And now the thread is open, I'll be able to answer my question about how the Nest thermostat got configured to the network and you know, found out what was going on. Um, Google also... This morning, it was a big morning for news, just uh, announced Project Zero. Um, And I like the way the uh, it it was Andy Greenberg writing for Wired. I'm paraphrasing what what he wrote. But but uh, for example, let's take the case of young American hacker George Hotz, who we've discussed a few times on the podcast Uh, back in 07. At age 17, George famously hacked and cracked AT&T's lock on the iPhone. Later, he reverse-engineered and cracked the PlayStation 3, which caused Sony to sue him. Um, And they settled with George agreeing never to hack another Sony product. Then he cracked Chrome's OS security, winning himself a $150,000 Uh, Chromium Award from Google for doing so. Um, And then two months after that, uh, Chris Evans, who's, I can't remember what his business card says. Uh, I I saw him referred to as the hacker herder, but that's not what his business, I think his business card says troublemaker uh, as his official title. 
Anyway, they hired George Hotz uh, full-time to join Google's new team of elite hackers in Project Zero. So this has been characterized various ways by the press that immediately picked up on this press release and blog posting. Uh, but, for example, Tavis Ormandy, who's, who we discussed often because he's been a, a great source of, of revelations of security problems, he's been recruited by Google. He was already at Google, but now he's part of Project this team, Project Zero. Um, they will shortly have or soon have 10 members on the team, and they're full-time employees of Google, all of them. And Google has said, we're hiring. So if you are a talented hacker who uh, looks, you know, like enjoys Internet security puzzles or have, have had these, you know, discoveries to your name in the past, Google would like to hire you. And um, the, the focus of, of Project Zero is is wide open. It is meant to be for the good of the internet to find vulnerabilities which will be responsibly disclosed in anything. Doesn't have to be Google properties. It could be anything. Um, and Google has said they will responsibly disclose them, then publish them once patched to an external database so that everyone can see what Project Zero is doing. So... Uh, this is just another initiative inside Google to push things forward I, you know, and improve the security of the Internet. So I think it's great. Um, so we talked about the the forkings of OpenSSL. We've discussed, of course, famously the, the, the big heartbeat, heart bleed problem with OpenSSL and that LibreSSL was the first fork of that. Well, it was released, ver what they called version 2.0.0 was released last Friday. And it was shortly tweaked for some portability issues, which were immediately discovered. In, in fact, 2.0.1 was then released on Sunday, so two days later. So that means that immediately after the release, people took the source and begin, you know, began compiling it in their own environments for their own use and immediately found some problems that the, the Libre guys fixed and released uh, 2.0.1. So here's the problem. Uh, uh, a blogger, Andrew Ayer, uh, wrote, despite the 2.0.x version numbers, there are only preview releases. These are only preview releases and shouldn't be used in production yet, but have been released to solicit testing and feedback. After testing and examining the code base, my feedback, writes Andrew, is that the Libre um, SSL PRNG, that which we know is the pseudo-random number generator, which is crucial, is not robust on Linux and is less safe than the OpenSSL PRNG that it replaced. Now, the problem is interesting. The way, the way Unix servers of, have traditionally handled multiple connections is through a process known as forking. 
you'll have a sort of a, a root server uh, which accepts connections and but but the server code itself is not multi-threaded by design and not able to handle multiple connections in a single instance of code. So when a new connection is presented, it forks itself, which is and, and which is the Unix, the original Unix term, meaning that it just makes a copy. It like clones itself, and that and so so that fork that clone of its code is given that connection to handle. And when another connection comes in, another fork is made. And, and so the idea is that rather than a single base of code having, being able to simultaneously through, typically through multiple threading, handle multiple connections, individual copies are made per connection. Um, that's really not the modern way to do it, uh, and, and I, you know, and and the newer the newer server architectures on Linux and Unix platforms are not forking. They're 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 using more advanced uh, uh, I/O protocols, so that because there's lots of various sorts of inefficiencies. Well, imagine if you have a pseudo random number generator, which is deterministic software based so that it's got an entropy pool and that entropy pool is driving an algorithm which is producing random numbers and you make a copy of it. Well, both copies are then going to generate the same random numbers and that's what's happening. Now, the designers of this PRNG technology first on OpenSSL understood that this was a problem. So what they do is they try to detect forking because there's, there's, a, there's something in Unix known as the PID, the process ID. And there's a guarantee that the child process of, a, of, of, of the parent, which forks to create the child, will will have a different process ID, but it turns out that it, that guarantee does not extend to a grandchild. That is, the the guarantee is only a child parent relationship, and so that means that the uh, if you have a, a a second child parent relationship with the you know like a second generation relationship, the grandchild of the original process can have the same process ID, which would mean that it might not detect that it had been forked. And so you'd end up generating the same pseudo-random numbers until there was a reseeding. Now, users of OpenSSL who, who are on the ball understand this. So they deliberately reseed after a fork in order to to not have the problem that a, a clone has been made of a pseudo random number generator which is just using the data in the clone to generate future random numbers first of all this is a horrible thing to be doing you know we we did a we did a podcast some weeks back where i talked about the the architecture that i designed 
for the entropy harvester in Squirrel that has none of these problems. I mean, the, and there's no reason any pseudo-random number generator today should <laughs> could not be well-designed. But not only is OpenSSL not well-designed, but Libre cloned it. So so what happened, but, but also broke it in the process. So, so under OpenSSL, if you understand the danger of forking in order to handle additional connections, the first thing you do after forking is you reseed your pseudo-random number generator, and there is a call to specifically request a reseeding now. Before, before control returns to you from that call, the pseudo-random number generator will be reseeded. Turns out the Libre SSL people, for unknown reasons, no-opt that call. So they have neutered the programmer's ability to recognize after a fork that there are synchronized, separate pseudo-random number generators, both generating the same numbers until they recede for whatever reason. So it looks to, you know, based on this, it looks like, uh, you know, as Andrew said, this is not ready for prime time yet. And, you know, I hope that the Libre SSL folks will give this some time and really open SSL ought to seriously look at improving the design of their pseudo-random number generator. As we know, crypto depends on unpredictable pseudo-random numbers. And uh, and this is, you know, clearly crazy that that this is, this is the way the system is operating. Uh, and I had next in my notes Netflix and Verizon, which we also already discussed. Um, Verizon did say that uh, in their posting... Um, uh, and I'm trying to skip the stuff. We uh, th- They said, therefore, we are working aggressively with Netflix to establish new direct connections from Netflix to Verizon's network. This doesn't prioritize Netflix traffic, but it ensures that their traffic gets on our network through direct connections, not middleman networks that are up to the task. The benefit of these direct connections will be twofold. First, Verizon customers who use Netflix will have a significantly improved experience as Netflix traffic flows over non-congested links. Early tests indicate that this is the case. The other benefit will be that the congestion that we're seeing today on those links between these middleman networks and our LA border router will likely go away once the huge volume of Netflix traffic is routed more efficiently. This will improve performance for any other traffic that is currently being affected over those connections. So that's what we were talking about when we, when we explained that if a border router is saturated, then not only because, and there's no traffic prioritization, not only is the, is the bulk traffic, which is creating the congestion, unable to get through, but with, with the way routers handle their buffers being overflowed, full is they're often you know they're just discarding whatever data can't fit in the in the in the network interface con, uh, controllers the NICs buffer um, and so other traffic is having a problem and so the point is what what Netflix is saying is that 
or I'm sorry, what Verizon is saying is their agreement with Netflix is, will be resulting in a direct connection between Netflix network and theirs and not going through middleman carriers. And the point is that then that will free up the border routers in these in the existing peering agreements and everything should work right. So my that, that's why I said looks like there's hope here. Um, it's just probably taking a while to get the hardware and everything in place and configured uh, and maybe some T's dotted and I's crossed. That's basically what I, a, what a peering relationship is, right? Is that uh, you put our you put your we have a direct connect. Yeah, what what I don't understand, and I've I've looked around and I still don't quite understand. But they talk about a an I a relatively balanced flow of traffic. That term keeps coming up over and over. And of course, and, that's nonsense because there's nothing Verizon customers would send to Netflix that's anywhere near the same amount of traffic that Netflix sends to Verizon. It's a it's an asymmetric relationship. But that's new, Leo. That's the point. the The traditional peering relationships right. have always relied on a balanced a balanced flow. And and I in fact I remember when I set up my my deal with Level Three, they wanted to know what my what my uh, in inbound and outbound bandwidths were, and they're not happy when they're really out of balance. And I I don't real I still don't get why that matters. I mean, but but it does because even earlier in that Netflix blog posting they talked about you know balanced a balanced relationship so as if well the know, way you balance it you can't if you can't balance it with bits is with bucks correct and 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 the idea was that traditionally peering relationships would have an a you know a near a near symmetric flow and somehow the idea was that both the, the people on both sides would thereby be getting equivalent value from peering which and i still don't understand why that's the case but you know <laughs> it makes it makes sense um if it's two internet service providers connecting it doesn't make sense if it's an internet service provider and a content provider like youtube uh, or exactly. netflix it's nonsense because right. Right. And so. although you know although you know Netflix is getting value because they're offering content for which they're being then they're being paid for offering content right. Verizon is getting value because exactly as as Brett Glass said the number one question his customers have is can I get Netflix so you know so for for Brett to be able to say yes for for Verizon to say yes that's providing you know Verizon is an ISP and delivering bandwidth, they're not delivering the content, but you know they're delivering the bandwidth that allows the content to get to their customers. So you know everybody's getting value from even though it's a non, it's even though it's an asymmetric bandwidth flow. The fact is that's today's world. Right. You know, as you say, we now have content providers. You know, and you know, you and I are doing that right now. Right. We're 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 providing content from a network out to a, a bunch of listeners. So, 
the Justice Department released what was sort of a press release that got picked up by a number of magazines. And I don't get it. Um, this was on Friday, uh, the 11th. Uh, they, they, they said uh, that the Justice Department has reported that CryptoLocker has been neutralized by the disruption of its network and cannot communicate with the infrastructure used to control the malicious software. As a result, CryptoLocker is effectively non-functional and unable to encrypt newly infected computers. Now, part of that I understand because we do know that even if you're infected with CryptoLocker, no encryption can take place until CryptoLocker is able to access a key server and and and, and, and obtain the the public key, um, which it then uses for generating a key such that that server holds the private key and you have to pay them in order to 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 get for it to decrypt the symmetric key which is used for encrypting all your files so if the infrastructure is shut down then crypt and if that's true then crypto locker even new infections cannot take action essentially they're they're reaching out and trying to to get to their infrastructure which the justice department is claiming is has been shut down um so I have not been able to to find any further evidence of this. Uh, SC Magazine, the the IT you know security magazine, reported that in its nine months of existence, the CryptoLink ransomware extorted more than twenty seven million dollars from victims. Of course, we've often covered CryptoLocker and the variations of it and Bitcoin and, and you know, was it what, Western Union? Or no, it was uh, something that like that you could buy in a store and they were like out of them because of the CryptoLocker uh, infections were so prevalent. Um, uh, and this is Bitdefender's uh, analysis uh, having watched this. And they, they are the guys that were the original discoverers and, and, and who mapped the... Uh, CryptoLocker network. Uh, and apparently, CryptoLocker saw more than 12,000 victims in less than a week as it was initially spread through phishing email. So, um, even, even the Bitdefender guys said that while, while it's, you know, maybe nice that CryptoLocker, like the existing infection, has been disrupted and cannot get a hold of its uh, infrastructure. Anything that makes twenty-seven million dollars for bad guys in nine months uh, is going to be well. We've already seen some clones of it, but but they're expecting variations on CryptoLocker that will avoid whatever has been done in order to to disrupt their network. So uh, I, I think this we need to consider. This is a maybe a brief respite from CryptoLocker, and uh, we have not seen the end of it. And I just wanted to mention in for, I have two miscellaneous topics. I was watching you um, yesterday with uh, iPad Today, and that Os- Osmo, O-S-M-O, 
I thought was so clever. Um, that was that it was an iPad app which where, where you put an iPad on a stand and you put a little sort of a little hood on the top of the iPad. Wasn't that cool? Well, what that, yeah. Yeah. And what that is, of course, it's a mirror that oh. aims the camera down oh, at the surface. Yeah. Yeah, in front of the iPad. So the camera and, and what was Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and so I just thought that was so clever. So so the idea was just for the people who didn't see iPad today, um it's called OSMO. It's meant for like kids. Yeah, and now Leo's showing I'm it showing the here video on the, on the for video yeah. viewers, yeah. Yeah. And so the idea is you it 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 connects your iPad to the real world. So you can like play with uh, t- uh, Tangram get, uh, things, like like move the tiles. It'll show a Tangram the on shape. the iPad screen, and then the kid has to do the same Tangram, and the camera sees it and knows when it's right. And it can exactly. say, oh, you got the bunny rabbit. Good job. Yep. And in fact, you're even able to like draw draw pictures of physical systems and then it will an- it'll pick up the drawing on the screen and animate the physics of Isn't it. Isn't that cool? So just it's so re- cool. Well, yeah, I thought it was such a clever. I, again, I just love the elegance of that. That just by putting the iPad on a stand and doing something as simple as a little mirror, so that the ca- the, the front facing or the 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 you fa- the, you know, the 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 user facing camera now is looking at the desktop. I just. Just really clever. So, and you can cool, do things it? like with Scrabble tiles and all kinds of stuff. So, I like the physics really. of the drawing engine is really neat. I guess they have three different uh, uh, devices that they're uh, or games that they're offering. So, yeah, it's really really cool. Really Not cool. inexpensive. I was a little shocked yeah. by the price, yeah. but, especially you know, since now that I know it's just a mirror. Exactly. <laughs> it's really you're paying for the app. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, well. Also, I, uh, n- number two topic. I just wanted to mention for our uh, our listeners that the strain, which premiered on Sunday on FX, uh, was very fun. Uh, IMDb gives it an eight point six, uh, and I got a kick out of the LA Times review uh, yesterday. They said the strain: these vampires aren't sexy; they're just deadly. And they said the they they said uh, the vampires in FX's new thriller The Strain are not repeat not romantic. <laughs> They're not brooding or conflicted or passionate or sparkly. They do not pout, pose, or toss off come hither glances. Mm-hmm. And not a single one of them looks anything like Alexander uh, Skarsgård. <laughs> and he, of course. True Blood, he play- beautiful uh, yes. vampire. Yes, yeah. he plays Eric Northman right. on True Blood. Uh, and uh, anyway, so this is from uh, Guillermo del Toro. And they said, as fans oh, might great. expect. Oh, yes. if he's doing it, yes. then I'm more interested. Yes. Yeah, it is his. It is his. They've been teasing it all, all like early summer as starting in July and I've just been I mean like really neat teases and it's like come on come on let's you know so we're finally here uh and 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 so the LA Times says as fans might expect from creature creator extraordinaire Guillermo del Toro the undead in this horror series are truly terrifying they're also parasitic and viral the product of a kind of contagion that single-mindedly seeks out hosts. So, 
for anyone who missed it, it is re-airing the, the, the premiere episode, which was titled Night Zero, is re-airing this Thursday, Friday, and Sunday on FX uh, pre, and pre, prior to the airing of the second episode, which is titled The Box, which airs next Sunday. So, uh, and I enjoyed it. I mean, it looks like we're going to have a, a, a fun series. So that's neat. And as you said, uh, I mean, it, it just looks like it's, you know, well done. Um, I'm continuing to work on Squirrel, of course. In fact, this is, uh, I'm holding up to the camera, a a rescue, a so-called rescue code uh, that was generated and printed by Squirrel, by my, the, the Windows client of Squirrel um, a couple of days ago. So uh, that work is proceeding. I expect to have all of the identity management stuff finished within a couple of days and I will. That's completely separate from the protocol. Uh, so I'm gonna. I will turn the client loose to the the denizens of GRC's news group, the Squirrel News Group, for them to pound on and play with and and you know find any mistakes that I made uh, while I'm working on the protocol side. Uh, and somewhat excitingly, when that's done, so is Squirrel. So uh, you know, making great progress. That's cool. And yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm very excited. And uh, uh, while you were in Hawaii, uh, a, a a German student, uh, Ralph, and I can't remember or pronounce his last name. Uh, he's do, he's doing. I think I don't know. It's before you left because I remember telling you that he had done his masters on Squirrel, and he showed his boss Squirrel running on his Android phone. And the boss was just stunned and was going to go out the next day or after the weekend and buy an Android device just so he could play with Squirrel and show it to their clients because they're going to support it. He's given Ralph a budget and they're going to be bringing up an iOS uh, version of the client also. So beginning to happen. Um, and I did see in my mailbag uh, a note from actually a question from that I wanted to explain from from Dan Hankins in Scottsdale, Arizona, who was wondering about Spinrite operating in a virtual machine. He said, "Much thanks for Security Now and Spinrite. Love the show and the product. I have a Spinrite question. I recently started running Spinrite for level four maintenance." from within a VMware virtual machine on my Linux host. I discovered, much to my surprise, that running that way was more than an order of magnitude faster than native. Why would this happen? I'm concerned (laughs) that because I have write caching turned on, the maintenance pattern writes are not actually ever being written to the hard drive. If that's true, that would defeat Level 4's attempt to refresh the surface. That would make Level 4 equivalent to Level 3 or 2. Should I turn write caching off or is something else going on? And the answer is yes, something else is going on. Um, What's happening is that many BIOSes are not supporting Ultra DMA mode. They just support what's called programmed I.O., P.I.O. And Spinrite 6 uses the BIOS for performing its bulk data 
reading and writing. It drops into talking to the drive directly for recovery because the BIOS doesn't give us nearly enough control. But it does use the BIOS for bulk I.O. But Spinrite does also disable write caching itself so that it's actually doing reading and writing, which is why the BIOS, which is stuck in PIO mode, is so slow. So what's happened is in VMware or in VirtualBox, both and probably all the VMs have much more state-of-the-art BIOSes. And they're like, you know, a virtual BIOS, but they're supporting ultra DMA. Now, so what that means is that even though Spinrite running in VMware or VirtualBox on Linux or Mac or a PC, even though Spinrite is still using the BIOS interface under Spinrite 6, the BIOS is then using ultra DMA so that that's not slow. Now, it's not as fast as 6.1 will be because it's still, it's still using Spinrite's small track size buffers, which is what it's traditionally used. And as I, when I've been talking about Spinrite 6.1, one of the things that we've are, all, the technology already finished for, for 6.1 is that I'm using maximum transfer size buffers, 32 megabyte buffers. And, and it just, Really, it it screams. So, so anyone using Spinrite six today who is seeing it run really slow on their machine, if running in a VMware virtual machine or in a virtual box, which is free virtual machine, uh, uh, is an option. It, it may very well run vastly faster for you, and you're still getting uh, full benefit of Spinrite. Hey, I just got this in the mail. I thought you might uh, might be interested in seeing it. The very my very first chip and pin credit card. Uh, yeah, this is a Mastercard. Yeah, it's supposedly by yeah. next year. Uh, and I had to log in to activate it. And I had to give it a four digit pin number. And of course, our international viewers, this isn't anything special. They've seen these for years, but uh, this is new to the U.S. The idea of putting in a a, a chip. I don't know. What do you know? What the chip does in the chip and pin? Is it like uh, the Verisign dongle? Is it like, or is I it have just, not looked is at it. it I've seen. Is not it? Looked, yeah, yeah, I've not looked at it closely yet. So what we're going to have, although it is a contact reader, so we're going to have to have readers changing from magstrip to to uh, essentially contact right. readers. So you'll you'll stick that into a slot and then and then uh, and enter your pin. Uh, that's certainly I, I need to spend some time and come up to speed and I uh, will explain it to everybody because it might simply be right. a memory chip with some, you know, with a number in it or something. But a token, yeah, but yeah. certainly better than a I think it's it's I think that they did something better than it just being a ROM because we already had that on the mag stripe. And so right. I think right. it's it, it yeah, right. participates more actively. Yeah, it have to. Right. What would be the point otherwise? Yeah. Huh. Cool. Yeah. It's finally happening, and these will make them much more secure until. And and yours also has out. a mag stripe on the back. Yes. Yeah. And so, somebody's saying so, there there may also be a touch to pay RF uh, ID in here. I don't know if that's the case. Doesn't mention that, but who knows? Yeah. Interesting. It's neat. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we have some questions <laughs> for Steve because uh, we didn't get to them all last week. Starting off with uh, Christopher Hunt, who wonders. 
Why not use pass equals openwireless.org for the open Wi-Fi SSID? In listening about and further researching the Electronic Frontier Foundation's openwireless.org site, that was the mesh network they were proposing, or are proposing, they suggest those who support or join to rename their APSSID to openwireless.org. Would it not be better for all involved to use a broadcasted, non-suppressed SSID of pass equals openwireless.org with, of course, a password of openwireless.org? That way the AP is still open, uh, yet it isolates all users involved. In other words, he's saying turn on WPA, uh, but just give out the password. Yeah, um, I think once we see this in operation, it'll make more sense. Yeah. Um, uh, the EFF is in a, in a conference like in the next couple of days, and I, I keep I, I've the, the conference is not one I'm familiar with, so I can't I keep forgetting the name of it. Although um, I, I've seen it several times, and in fact, the the movie uh, remember the hacker movie dot. I don't remember if it was .com or .org, but it was one that we talked about uh, that was going to be made by a, a, a private filmmaker. Um, he ended up releasing that and making it free uh, for 24 hours recently, and he'll be airing it at this conference, which is where I saw the name again recently, although I can't remember it. Anyway, the point is that EFF is, um, is making fr uh, firmware available for a specific router, which, which essentially gives it this capability. They're promoting the idea, as, as we talked about on the podcast a few weeks ago, which is what stimulated uh, Christopher's question, of a sort of a, a two-facing router. If you'd still have your own private password um, running, you know, local encrypted communications, but you would also have another another sort of like a guest mode. In this case, though, it would, and I don't know what their SSID is. I think the SSID is wireless. In fact, I'm, now I do remember that it's wireless.org is the SSID you're supposed to use. And my point is that this works with a certificate in your device. So devi devices can have certificates. And so there would be a certificate for this network that would allow it to encrypt your communications um, without needing to manually input any sort of a of a password, and that certificate in your in your client device would match the certificate that would be burned into the firmware which EFF is providing. And the point is, it just it gives you encrypted wireless with zero effort. And I ran across a, an odd story uh, in the last week talking about it was it was I can't remember wh how I encountered it, but it was it was a posting about how patrons of a restaurant were complaining about the service in 20. I think it was in 2013 or no, I guess it was now in 2014. And it happened that the restaurant had cameras just for, you know, general dealing with problems that occur in the restaurant purposes from 04. They still had the recordings from 04. So they were able to analyze what people do in restaurants now versus then. And the story is that people are so hooked on their smartphones that their food is getting cold 
and they're to a much greater degree than they were before <laughs> smartphones. They're complaining and sending it back. The waiters are coming by, but they haven't looked at their menus yet oh, because they're busy their with their smartphones. Exactly. And they're having trouble. They're, they're complaining that they can't get on the restaurant's Wi-Fi <laughs> and asking for instructions for how to get on the Wi-Fi. Mean, meanwhile, of course, no other tables are being served and people's food is getting cold <laughs> and great. the waiters are having to come back, you know, because of, you know, phones, smartphones. Wi-Fi. It's what's for dinner. And so, so the idea would be if... Is if establishments adopted this, and if this became popular, people would have they they would have downloaded this matching certificate, which would be freely available, and their phones would just simply be on the internet. Wi-Fi would just become transparent. Or no need yet, get a get a cell phone jammer, and let them eat the <laughs> GD food. All right, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess there's no, there's no going back. Well, you know, jammers are legal in Las Vegas. and uh, oh, are they really? Yeah. Well, I guess because famous... casinos, sure. Exactly, because yeah. you don't want people do, you know, yeah. getting up to no good in casinos. And so casinos block cell phones, but it's, Ill- it's very illegal sure. uh, to do that. Because the babysitter, uh, you know, you, can't, you might be expecting yep. that you could get a call from the babysitter and not know. And 911 calls yeah. get blocked and yeah. so forth. Yeah. yeah. We're just going to have to live with the fact that nobody's paying attention to anything anymore. So, so we will keep our eye on this uh, EFF initiative and, uh, yeah. and see how it goes. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of the, the contrapuntal response to the Comcast Time Warner thing to uh, yes. turn your well, co- access point into an access, public access. And, and you know, they, are, they, they mentioned that this, increased, they say this increases your privacy because it gives you plausible deniability. Right. You're saying, hey, I don't know. I, I'm making my, right. my wireless available right. so you know, that wasn't i who did that it could have been anybody yeah question two comes from our chatter jim p in chicago he wants to know whether last passes worn before filling insecure forms actually works before i left we were talking about this problem yeah in this week's show and i think it was a couple of weeks ago you mentioned last pass as a feature that will warn you when filling insecure forms but i've tried it on two sites that have insecure registration forms, winsupersite.com, Paul Throt's site, and channelpartnersonline.com. And I didn't get a warning from LastPass even when I submitted the insecure form. Are you sure it works? Okay, so that's a great question. Um, and uh, that was a popular tip. So I wanted to address this. First of all, anyone who's curious can go to TiVo.com because I'm a TiVo user. And every time I go to TiVo.com, that warning pops up to warn me that TiVo's form submission is insecure. And it also turns out that the NewYorkTimes.com blogs page, so NYTimes.com slash blogs, same thing happens. Uh, uh, Jenny is a big New York Times reader, and so she's often sending me links. And I was following a link to some story that she wanted to share with me. Uh, and I think I couldn't get there, so I dug around and went to the blogs page, and boop, up popped another uh, warning. So I know that it can work, but J- Jim's point is: Are we, sh- you know, is it guaranteed to work? I think, and the answer is no, because because of scripting. When a form is 
there, LastPass is clearly looking at the page content, and we know that it's doing that because it's a form fill-in application. So it's looking, you know, it's parsing the HTML of the page and and understanding what's there, and it's looking to see whether the, you know, the action URL for the form is HTTPS. Unfortunately, in super fancy sites like Paul Therott's winsupersite.com, it's not simple HTML. And in fact, I was curious about Jim's claim about Paul Therott's site, and so I went there. And oh my Lord, I have no idea what is going on. I mean, I captured the traffic, I clicked on a form, and I don't know where Paul got the gobbledygook that he's serving, but it is amazing. I don't know what it's doing, but it's, you know, somehow, you know, he's pulled things in from different places and don't blame Paul. He hates their content management system. It's, well, okay. the, it's the company Penton Media that runs it. Wow, good. <laughs> He's good, not a fan it is, of it. Yeah. Oh boy. So so the point is that if scripting is involved and boy is it involved, because you don't have, if you don't have scripting on, that nothing works there. Um so there just isn't obvious form content. Something is, you know somehow being rendered on the fly, being pulled in. In fact, I think I got like a pop-up like thing floating over the top of the page, you know, and only after I completely lowered my defenses and told no script to trust 26 other things. And it's like, oh boy. So, so the answer is, I know that it can work, but but due to the nature of scripting and how crazy things have gotten, you certainly can't, it can't be guaranteed to work. But it does pop up when I, you know, run across sites from time to time. And I'm always happy to see it because, you know, if it's credentials or credit card information or something sensitive, uh, you definitely don't want to be submitting that on an insecure form. In fact, there was a site, I can't remember now what it was, just the other day where I was really uncomfortable. I mean, I was glad that I had that warning. So for anyone who didn't take action, by all means do if you're a user of LastPass because uh, it, it, although it may not pop up in every instance, when it does, uh, it's definitely good to know. It's not in the uh, settings. It's in the preferences. So you'll yes. open LastPass and you'll change your uh, preferences in the advanced section. Warn yes. before filling in insecure uh, forms. And don't forget to save it. I forgot to save it. So it's not the default. Yeah. And then go to TiVo.com, Leo. Oh, let's and try let's, it. Let's, Shall we? Yeah. Shall we try it? I have a TiVo account, so uh, I can I can log in on this insecure site. Let's just... Uh, so first I have to say, oh, I'm signed in, so let's sign out. Sign in. It's going to take me to the sign-in. Well, see, it remembers my... That's too bad. Ah. I'll have yeah. to uh, delete the cookie for that to work, uh, or yeah. I could do it in anyway. Safari. So, go ahead for what, for what it's for what it's worth. It's worth uh, doing it, even it if it's not pops 100%. up. Yeah, it's definitely worth turning it on. Yeah. It has saved me several times when I've been at sort of you know off the beaten path sites that are saying, "Oh, you know, yeah. log in." It's like, oh, are you really good. Yeah, it's yeah. all right. Yeah. Everything's okay. Yeah, so what LastPass is doing is it's looking at the page and and it is a it is a it's a an annoying aspect of HTML that you know we can't see 
what it is that the form submission is doing. The page we're on can be insecure, yet the form submission can be secure and vice versa. And in fact, I think I was on a secure page and LastPass was saying, this form submission is not secure. It's like, huh? Why would they do that? But, you know, hmm. LastPass saw that it was a, a non-secured going on. You know, it didn't warn me, but... Uh, huh. Never mind. Yeah, for what it's worth, I, I see it all the time. Good. And, yeah, and, and there's no reason not to turn it on, even if it doesn't work yes. 100% of the time. Yes, exactly. Uh, question number three. Marcus Mix in Lindlar, Germany, which he says is near Cologne, or Cologne, wonders why the world thinks Lost Pass is rock solid. Hey, why does the world think that? I'm a listener of Security Now for three years. Most often I agree with your much-appreciated opinion, but sometimes I cannot follow your arguments. I'm writing because I can't follow the argument about why LastPass is secure. It can't be proven because it's not open source. In episode 256, some moons ago, Steve said he tested for some days and has come to the conclusion LastPass is secure. Well, that's not the normal TNO gold standard. Am I wrong? Am I missing something? I've been using KeePass for years, which is open source. But now I'm looking for a secure password manager, which supports per-person team access controls to get away from different KeePass databases and move to a centralized solution like LastPass. But it needs to be TNO gold standard, especially when using a cloud solution. I don't like it because I don't trust the public cloud. I would much appreciate any help about what I missed because I really want to understand why you trust LastPass. Maybe after the NSA revelations, it would be worth checking back on the subject of LastPass in a Q&A episode in the future. We all love your podcast and hope that we can hear it for a very long time. Best regards from the world champion, Germany, yes. Lindlar. Yes, Go! Okay. <laughs> I added that. He didn't say that. So we would like security to be black and white. And if there's any lesson we've learned... It's that it's not black and white. Um, um, KeyPass is open source. Are, are you aware, Leo? Is there an open source cloud-based solution that would Marcus would like? The KeyPass is the only open source solution I know of. Yeah. Now, um, there, now, so, but you got you looked at the JavaScript, so you were able to see some stuff, right? Yes. Uh, what well, what I did was. The, the reason I use it and trust it, and it is the most popular password manager in the world today, is that they have been very forthcoming about the technology and the protocol. That is, Joe laid out exactly the way it works, and, and I and other independent coders coded up an implementation for ourselves that generated exactly the same data ah. that their that the last pass is sending to them. So so I know it, I mean it's better it's like it's better than open source. It's independently written and verified identically operating which is like beyond auditing the source code. You know, and that's why I'm excited about many people implementing Squirrel. Is that when all of our stuff matches, we're we're all like cross verifying each other's work. There's just nothing better that you could than than you could do than independently write to a spec and have the same thing come out. Then then you're verifying everybody's interpretation. So it doesn't mean there's not a backdoor though, because you could have a backdoor and still 
and still have produce the same result. Absolutely. And well, let's see. Uh, it okay. So there's a fundamental the, the the fundamental problem with the and this is where we get into trade off with a web based solution is that we are when you go when you use LastPass you are you are and and you have the plugin you're getting the code your browser is getting the code from them that allows them as with google for example to be updating themselves that's mm-hmm. why 9 months ago when these researchers at uc berkeley found a problem joe was able to fix it in a day and we all got the benefit of it the next day so yes it's true the flip side is that that the the software is dynamic that is it's it's we're always receiving it but we're that's what true with windows and microsoft's updates it's true of with google and chrome i mean that's the way the world is today so the the only way to know for sure is write your own uh, or you know find something open source and read it or implement it so that it's compatible and then never change. I mean, there there are if you want absolute security, the, the you have to start somewhere, um, and you have to decide where you're going to start trusting. You know, there have been people who wondered if the Intel architecture, if the Intel chips don't have a backdoor in them. Well, you know, go get some sand and melt it into silicon, <laughs> make it very make it very pure and make yourself a processor or i guess you could just take an fpga and you know start there you really don't have to start at the silicon but my point is you the tr- the fact is you are already trusting a huge infrastructure you're trusting certificate authorities you're you, we don't know how many of those actually are nsa fronts you're i mean you're we're already trusting so you just got to decide where you feel comfortable and where you don't. I'm very comfortable trusting LastPass. Um, I, I think, you know, could I be wrong? Yes. Am I probably wrong? I, I see no evidence to believe that. Yeah, and as we've learned from TrueCrypt, even if some, if the source code is readable, doesn't mean that anybody's validated it. And it's or quite open an SSL. Or open SSL. SSL and Heartbleed. Right. It was in use for years. Right. And with a big problem, so yeah, the very fact that it's open, that it's open, it's it's not in t- really what you want to do is you want to have independent developers write code to a spec and have the results match, and that's what amount many people did for the, for the protocol that LastPass uses to encrypt our stuff in the cloud. We understand that we're taking our our, our email address and our password, how that's being hashed to create the key for encryption and then that's being hashed and that creates a tag that that LastPass uses to identify us yet because the tag is on the other side of a hash and hashes are by design not reversible they can't go backwards and figure out what it was that we hashed to get the tag you know we did cover this on that episode 256 that was probably the last pass podcast that i did as you said like you know five years ago uh where i said okay this is what i'm using i understand this and based on that i've been recommending and using it myself ever since in fact uh we use it for our enterprise uh, password management we've offered it free to every employee to encourage them to use it themselves 
offered yep. a, a and, personal version. You know, I Jen, pay for it. <laughs> Jenny's using it and says, "Oh my God! Now I can finally get back into the sites I was I got into before." I was surprised. Because, you you know, know, we we said to, to we sent out a memo saying anybody who wants LastPass for your personal use, we will pay for it, and nobody took me up on it. Which either means they all are using it. That's what I'm hoping, or they don't care. But I think our 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 fine staff probably all knows. They've heard me rail on and on long enough. They probably all were using well, it. Well, and the free version really does as much does, as you need. Too, well, right? the only thing you get with the paid version is, I think, mobile. And since most okay. of us now use our phones, having LastPass oh on the phone is really a big part of it. Yeah, it's only twelve yeah. bucks a year. It's not. Um, and well, we and sh- we also we also like the fact that it has a clear economic model yeah, i'm happy I don't want to, i'm happy yeah. to pay joe a buck a month exactly. in order to in order to know you know i like no ads and you know no no funny business and i should point out that with, uh, life is full of trusting i mean if you drive down the street you're trusting that the guy going the other direction isn't going to swerve into you head on you have to so, you know, one of the things that I've had on my mind, Leos, ever since the TrueCrypt discussions was a project that I that I hope to take on for the podcast is a – I think it would be really interesting to create a formal definition of security. That is, you know, when we were talking about, well, but these guys are anonymous. Okay, well, what does that mean? Uh, you know, at, and and like it's open source or closed source, and and what does it mean that it's been vetted over time? I mean, you know, like there, it would be possible for us to to create a formal definition of what we mean by the word secure. What you know, what what where does security come from? What what where does it derive? Where does security come from, mommy? <laughs> Well, son, <laughs> it all starts when a. Actually, by the way, the, I just want to make one mention. I was uh, mentioned that I went to Safari to see if TiVo, and it turns out that preference is per browser. That's a plug-in preference to warn for insecure forms. So you do need to go to every browser that you use. Oh, that on. you it it doesn't go with your account. It doesn't it's not in a, that's why it's not in account settings. It's in preferences. Ah. Never knew that. Preferences means. Per plugin, I guess, or per browser. Moving on to question number four from Kevin Weinman in New Jersey. He wonders about protection from CryptoLocker. I have a small IT shop. Many of my clients use OneDrive or Dropbox for backup. I'm concerned that a malware program like CryptoLocker, once on a client machine, would encrypt those files and that those changes would be passed up to the cloud. Is there any way to detect the encryption process or change a special permission that would prevent encryption? I suppose one could write a script to open a file and if it failed, alert the user, but there's no guarantee the selection of files by the ransomware will not be random. So we've talked about this before, um, but I thought it is worth reiterating because CryptoLocker, even though it may currently be sleeping, uh, I don't expect it to stay asleep for long or, uh, you know, and, and we've already seen some clones. I want to remind people of the site Bleeping Computer. Uh, if Great you just site. Google, yes, if you just Google crypto, but Bleeping Computer is a little big. And it's even, I, I couldn't, when I just went to bleepingcomputer.com, I couldn't find the CryptoLocker page. So it's better if you Google the term CryptoLocker 
And within the first couple links, because the site, as you say, Leo, is so good, you'll find a reference to Bleeping Computer. Click that. You'll go to a fabulous page, which they've pulled together and are maintaining about CryptoLocker. And, and, and Kevin and others, there are things you can do. They're, you know, they're, they're soft fixes. By that I mean they, they block CryptoLocker today, but the CryptoLocker people have already been evolving CryptoLocker to change some of the earlier advice and recommendations to skirt these things. So, but there are, you know, to answer Kevin's question directly, on that page, scroll down, you will find a number of settings that actually do completely block it today. So that if anybody, all, all of his clients, for example, or and, and, and you can use a script or like re, a registry settings or... Um, uh, what's the other thing? <laughs> I can't think of the term. Sys internals. Uh, but, no. Um, uh, policies. Group. Oh, group, group policy. Yeah, group policy. The group policy system. Yeah. Yes, you're able to use group policies to to like quickly modify some of the settings on the system that completely block CryptoLocker today. But it is important to understand it may not block it tomorrow because. You know, that's the nature of how open our computers are and the fact that the crypto locker guys are seeing what people are doing to block them and can probably work around anything we can do. But today it can be completely blocked. Just Google crypto locker and look for the bleeping computer link. And thanks to Web 1726, who reminds us that the movie is called Algorithm. Ah, yes. I, I, yeah, it was, it was originally named, uh, the hacker movie and jonathan renamed it algorithm and it will yes. be screened saturday night as part of the hope conference i'm glad to know hope's uh, still going that's, on that's yeah. the name hackers hope. on planet earth it's a new york city based uh, conference i think and it's that's uh, the hacker 2600 i think does it and uh, it's a great it's a great conference yeah and that's the conference where eff will be uh, formally announcing their firmware for the routers oh good oh good yep Tom out in hot Redlands, California. And when he says hot, I bet it's really hot, like ooh, over 100. Ooh. Wonders about my refrigerator? Leo recently mentioned that you refrigerate a bunch of your old PDAs. I, like you, have hoarded some Zyre 31 models, but I keep them in a regular room, and it can get pretty hot in my area. Why the need for cold storage? Thanks, Mr. G. Cheers, Tom. Well, it's chemistry. Um, and uh, you'll remember, Leo, I'm sure, that it was common practice in the old days that photographers kept their film in the refrigerator. Yeah. yeah. That's where you put your film. And it's because you, you, you know, anything that is involving chemicals is slowed down in the cold. So the reason my PDAs are my old whatever they are, uh, titanium. I mean, it really, it's. Uh, I think it's time it's, to really give up on this. It really Call is. <laughs> I there. I couldn't possibly use them now. Um, but some things, you know, some things don't die. Like my HP calculators. I'm glad I have a bunch of them uh, because that's the only calculator I ever want to use. No one has made anything better. It is certainly the case that I would find the Palm, whatever it was, tungsten, no longer. Uh, <laughs> 
able to to fulfill my needs. Or the but at the time, 31. I thought, maybe, yeah. yes. Hey, but I have a six-pack so, of Zima in my freezer. I'm going to keep that there. Well, and I've got all my batteries in my freezer, all my, my AAAs. Batteries are good. Yeah, it's good to do that with batteries, so right? Yeah. For the, for the same reason. You but you have to watch preserve. condensation. Isn't that a potential issue? Yeah, and that's why all of the, naturally, all of the um, PDAs are in their own little individual bags that are sealed against uh, moisture. So you need a vacuum a machine that you can vacuum seal them. So there'll be that's right. no that's moisture in there at all. Come on, Steve. Right, so, the, so the answer to Tom is just, just because you <laughs> want to keep them cool uh, to like keep them fresh. Apparently, Film, uh, batteries, and food. Except that's not true for lithium-ion batteries, apparently. Don't freeze them. Oh, no, 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 no. Don't freeze. Absolutely. No, they're not frozen. They're just refrigerated. Chilled. They're just chilled. Chilled. Yes. <laughs> Did people freeze their film? or I think they no, just refrigerated. They, they just refrigerated. In fact, many, yeah. many photographers in the film days would have a uh, darkroom fridge or a fridge in their studio where they would keep all their yeah. film. Yeah. yeah. Christopher on, he says, the internet's. <laughs> worries about microphones being used as bugs. I've always used an external mic with a mixer or physical switches on mics. Yeah, it's normal, us too. But when using a webcam, it always bothers me to see signals picked up by the webcam in the recording device's mixer in Windows. Yep. What I mean is the webcam's mic is only silenced in software. It's muted, not the default recording device or turned down, but it's there. I believe people with resources like the NSA or Microsoft could use these open mics as bugs. Having a mixer, I know, from a chatting with the people online who walk away from a webcam microphone, you can amplify that signal here several rooms in a house. Surely compression software could do the same automatically. I've saved my sanity for years now by going into the device manager and disabling the driver for my webcam mic. Now I have an obsession for the online game where I need to communicate and have both hands. The headset I have has no physical mute button. Is this a concern for the ultra-paranoid? Do I have a potential open mic now for the NSA with a webcam picture? Well, you just use tape or point it to the wall, but I don't think people think twice about the mic that's right next to that camera, Steve. Yeah. Um, he, for, Christopher is absolutely right. Uh, we, have, we, we know that there is software... Uh, you know, the various kitty monitoring software. We've covered stories about, you know, schools getting themselves in trouble for lo loaning laptops to students and then turning the webcams on on the laptops. Certainly the microphones uh, are the same. We, and we've talked about physically covering up the lens, as Christopher mentions, in order to block the camera. But the mic is information leakage, too. Um the only thing I know is what Christopher has done, which is to go in and essentially remove driver level, you know, device driver level support for the device. And in, in that instance, it just it disappears from the inventory that software gets when it says, give me a list of all the microphones on the machine. Um, but he's, yeah, I guess he's, he's got, he's using both hands now and using a headset. Uh, my advice would be if he's really worried about this, unplug the headset when you're not using it, because otherwise you do have a potentially, you know, a potential open mic. Um, but yeah, mics can certainly be used as bugs. Uh, and we, we absolutely know that there is not only commercial software, but we have 
we've run across indications of malware that you know, like these uh, the rats, the remote access Trojan uh, tools, which which among their list of features is listen to the room and monitor through the webcam. So you know, hackers know about this too. Probably wouldn't be enough to just uncheck the driver. You'd probably have to uninstall it. I mean, if if you've got malware on your system that's turning the mic on, it certainly could re-enable the microphone, right? Right. I agree. It's you got to get the software off there. Yeah. And 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 normally at, at the API level where the software works, it has the option to turn it on. So just turning it off and doesn't do, do it. it. No. It would see it and be able to enable it and turn the volume all the way up and do everything. It needs. Yeah, you're right. You need to actually remove support so that it just disappears from your mixer and you're not seeing it at all. It's kind of a pain if you ever wanted to use oh, it. Oh, my God. It's a big pain. And don't forget to put your cell phone in a Faraday cage. But, of course, it has a <laughs> microphone, too, which is always on. And I'm not going to – I don't want to make him even more paranoid. We've got microphones all over all the time. Yeah, we do. Yeah. Steve, that concludes the uh, question and answer portion of the show. Is there uh, anything else you'd like to talk about? We got it covered. And I think that uh, next week we will I, we, I will have a fascinating uh, podcast prepared uh, following from that 15-page research report from the UC Berkeley researchers who looked in detail into the operational behavior of those five web-based password managers. Uh, that'll be our topic for next week, unless, you know, something catastrophic happens and we have something <laughs> even even more important and interesting it is worth uh, revisiting password managers in general because i think we we, yeah. we really strongly recommend the use of them and we want to make sure they're safe and secure to use yes you'll need them until squirrel takes over the world then never again <laughs> never again squirrel and uh, what's going on with squirrel available at steve's site along with what's up with 6.1 of Spinrite and everything else he's got so many projects and so many irons in the fire he also posts 16 kilobit versions of the audio of this show plus fully human written transcripts grc.com and while you're there you might want to pick up a copy of Spinrite, world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility you can get uh, full quality audio and video of the show at our website, twit.tv slash SN, or wherever podcasts are aggregated. Just search for Twitter, Security Now, Stitcher, all of the apps uh, that uh, our th wonderful third-party developers uh, put out. In fact, we've now got a list at twit.tv slash apps of all the different apps and all the different platforms, including Roku, Samsung, Vizio, lots of places. So it's always fun to, to watch along as we do the show, which is Tuesdays, 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 2000. U-T-C. Thank you, Steve. Yeah, that Ro the Roku app works really Is well. Nice? I was yeah. yeah I, I I set Jen up with uh, Roku so that I could share some video stuff with her. And I thought, oh look, there's Twit is available, and yeah, it, nice? it works great. Thanks yeah. to Craig Mullaney at Shift Key Software for that one. Yes, we have a good bunch. Okay, of my friend. Developers. Thank you, Steve. Talk have to a you great next afternoon. Week. Stay cool, and we'll see you next you week. You too. On security now. Security.